I'd say Happy New Year, but I don't know if it's going to be happy or not. So I'll say Blessed New Year. How's that? <laughs> That's a better thing. Well, we're going to continue in our, our study of 1 Corinthians. We uh, spent a little time here the last couple of weeks as well, um, even in our Christmas messages. And I don't know about you, but uh, you know when we come to um, this time of the year with all the holidays and different things going on, I pray that you had a blessed uh, Christmas day with family and friends and, and uh, had a wonderful time remembering the birth of our Savior. Uh, but today is the last day of, last Sunday, I should say, of 2018. Uh, I don't know about you, but you look back over the past year and it's amazing to me how when you anticipate a new year, how you realize how fast time goes by. It just seems like we were doing this last year. Uh, all those weeks, all those days, even minutes, are gone. 8,760 hours, gone. Never to be recovered again. And usually it's this time of the year when we spend time reflecting, you might say, on the past year. Reflecting on our blessings. Uh, reflecting on the triumphs and victories maybe that we had with the Lord's help, but also reflecting on the trials and the tribulations and maybe even the defeats that we faced in 2018. But this time of year is also a time when we can look forward, and that's what we do generally. People look forward to the future. They look forward to what's ahead, what lies ahead in the year 2019. It's a brand new year, brand new slate. As Ken said, many people make resolutions this time of year. I gave up on that a long time ago. Uh, I just say, Lord, help me do what I do better in 2019 than I did in 2018. <laughs> help me by your grace. And I'm sure that this past year has had its blessings and its trials, as will 2019, the coming year. And there'll be no different. Uh, I heard someone say, I wish I could know the future what was coming. I don't know about you, but I would not want to know the future. <laughs> I thank God every day that I don't have the ability to look down into the future and know what's around the bend and know what's coming. I think to possess such an insight into the future would not produce inner peace. It would create major anxiety. How are you going to get through this? What do you mean this is going to happen? I mean, you can, your mind just goes, even just anticipating this new year, what will happen? Um, and sometimes when we don't have all the information, what happens is that produces a fear within us. Lack of information generally produces fear. If you go on a new roller coaster ride you've never been on before, you may be a little anxious. Why? Because you're fearful. You've never experienced it before. Um, if you're faced with a new experience that you've never had the opportunity to go through before, there may be a little fear or anxiety there. It's the fear of the unknown. That's something that God has placed really within us. And I think as we embark upon this new year, 2019, I just want to gather some insights from the Apostle Paul, his letter to the Corinthians, the first letter. And uh, I want to look at specifically at verses 7 through 9, kind of picking up where we left off. And I want to read that for us this morning. Verses 7 through 9. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift, Paul writes, as you wait for the revealing of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in that day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, I want to talk to you this morning about starting the new year right. Starting the new year right. Uh, We just concluded looking over the past several weeks of Paul's introductory statements to this book, this letter that he wrote the church in Corinth. And uh, we entitled that past little series, Thanksgiving at Christmas Time. And Paul addressed what he was thankful for. If you recall, Paul was expressing thanks to God for the benefits that we receive by being a saint. Not a saint in a church saintly way, but in a saint that we are set apart by God for his pleasure. Now remember, Paul was writing to a church in Corinth who was doing anything but acting saintly. (laughs) They were doing just the opposite. As a matter of fact, as we get into this letter further and further, you're going to find out that this church in Corinth was downright fleshly. It was not spiritual. It was very fleshly. Um, They were not honoring the Lord with their actions in their own personal lives as well as within the lives within the church. I mean, it's one thing to kind of act up and sin in your own personal life, but to come in church and do it, boy, that's something else. I mean, you have to be a pretty hardcore person to come to a place where people are worshiping God and openly sin. And yet that's what was going on in the church of Corinth. Um, They were bringing disgrace upon one of the most sacred ordinances that the church knows, that of communion. The time of communion, which we'll be celebrating next week in the new year, is a a time that the Lord has laid down to call us to remember the sacrifice that he made on our behalf on Calvary. He said, do this until I come back. Remember my death. We're not called to remember his birth, even though we do through Christmas time. We're called to remember his death, his sacrifice. And what they did in Corinth is just beyond even our imagination. They basically turned, in, turned the communion time into a, a, a party a party of debauchery, a party of drunkenness. I mean, can you imagine coming to the communion table and drinking and sexual orgies going on? I mean, we, we can't even imagine that in our churches today. And yet that's what was going on in the church in Corinth. I think it's important to remind ourselves why Paul is addressing them as saints It's clearly not because they were acting like saints, (laughs) but because of their profession in Christ, the profession of Christ, the profession of being saved by Christ. He was reminding them the benefits that that results in. The results of coming to Christ, of having your sins forgiven, of being placed in sainthood. And he begins to thank God for the benefits of sainthood all the way back in verse 4. And we talked about how there's different dimensions to these benefits, the past. We talked about the grace of our salvation. That's something that's taken care of the moment we come to Christ. We don't have to worry about it anymore. We don't jump in and out of Christ. Once we are placed in Christ, once our sins have been forgiven, past, present, future, we are forgiven. We are declared righteous, the Bible says, before a holy God, even though 
Practically, we're not. (laughs) We sin every day. But we are declared righteous. We have partaken of the grace of God. And then, secondly, we looked at the present time, how God has gifted us with certain things. He's provided for us. He says there that he's provided for us all speech, all knowledge, all the gifts. He's given them to us. We're thoroughly equipped. And then in the future, today we're going to look at what we're going to experience basically only when we get to heaven. We can anticipate that. But it gives us a little ability to look forward to this new year and say, wow, if God is going to do these things for me, it's something to look forward to. When we talked about the the past benefits of grace, we said that grace cannot coexist with guilt, human obligation, or human merit. It can't. It's got to be one or the other. And he says there that we have all speech and all knowledge and all gifts. He's not saying we know we're not omniscient, obviously. He's not saying that. We don't know everything as God knows it. But he's saying as far as living your Christian life, you are equipped to do everything that God has called you to do. There's nothing more that you need from God after you are in Christ. Christ is sufficient not only to save, but to sustain us and to meet all of our needs throughout our life, throughout our Christian life here on earth. We don't need to ask God for more grace or more love. He's already given us everything that we have in Christ and his word. I don't know if you remember, we used to sing a little chorus here years ago. And the chorus went like this, more love, more power, more of you in my life. Nice little song. Nothing wrong with it. It's just theologically incorrect. You're asking God for something he's not going to give you. He's not going to give you more love. He's not going to give you more power. He's given you everything that you possess in Christ. See, that is very powerful when you understand that. When you understand once you are a believer that you are equipped to do everything that God has called you to do. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have to study. It doesn't mean you don't have to work out your salvation as we're called to do. But the Bible clearly says that he has equipped us for every work that he has called us to do. He's given us everything we need. I mean, we have the very Holy Spirit dwelling within us, do we not? I mean, that should speak for itself. Somebody might say, well, are you saying that a Christian doesn't lack anything? Well, according to 2 Peter, as far as living their Christian life, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, here's what Peter had to say. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. I mean, how much more do you need? You're partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. What's it saying? You have all things in Christ. You have all things in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul says, you are complete in him. There's nothing to add. You know, it's not like, you know, sometimes 
I just bought an app for the iPad so that we could mix the sound a little bit better. And you go on there and you buy the app and then it says, oh, well, if you want this thing, you got to buy this. You know, you ever buy an app like that? And then they kind of add on and add on. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) What's going on here? See, it's not like that. We are complete in Christ. We can't add anything to our salvation. Even in Ephesians 2, he tells us what we're enriched in everything, as he does here in 1 Corinthians, as we went over before. 1 Corinthians 3.21, he says, And you have all things, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. And everything you have everything you need. You lack absolutely nothing. What a wonderful thing to understand your position in Christ and the provision that God has given you in Christ as you anticipate this new year with all its challenges and maybe trials and tribulations and blessings. So when you look at these future benefits of grace, God's grace not only provides past and present benefits through the grace and the gifts that he's given us, but it also provides future benefits. It's a guarantee. God has saved us by his grace. He empowers us with these gifts of his grace to minister to one another. But then he also guarantees that the final fulfillment of his grace, our glorification, is guaranteed. The best is yet to come, is Paul's message here. We're grateful for the past. We want to be responsible and use our gifts wisely to minister to one another within the body of Christ. But our greatest joy is looking to the future, looking to what is on the horizon we watch and we wait and we anticipate what the lord's coming and not just the rapture but his his second coming you know it's not just a matter of getting out of here it's a matter of seeing god's purposes completely fulfilled well we have a lot of work to do here on earth yet so he hasn't pulled us out of here yet he's given us gifts that we are called to use for his glory And as long as he has work for us to do here, it's necessary that we stay here. It's kind of what Paul was saying in Philippians. He said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 and 26, he said, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Is gain. I mean, you may be afraid of how you're going to die. I think about that once in a while. Oh, I die. Creates a little anxiety. But I don't fear death. I welcome it. I just pray God will be gracious in the process. (laughs) He says in verse 22, he says, If I am to live in the flesh, Paul is saying this, that means fruitful labor for me. Now, Paul was in a prison. He wasn't in, you know, the Marriott (laughs) in Jerusalem. He was in prison. And he said, you know what, God, whatever you want to do. So many times I hear Christians, they come in a little, they, they come under a little physical ailment or they have some, you know, issues going on. Ah, I just wish the Lord would take me out of this place. That's not what God, that's not what Paul said. Paul could have very easily prayed that prayer. He could have said, man, why am I here in prison? I'm, you know, tortured. I'm done. All this stuff. Lord, get me out of here. That was his fleshly desire to be relieved of that suffering, that pain. But he says, you know what? As long as you have me here, Lord, I'm going to be about your business. I want to do fruitful, he says, labor. 
God has provided us things to do here on this earth. And as long as we're here, we need to make sure that we're fulfilling God's purpose for us by utilizing the gifts that he's already given us and ministering to one another and even out to the world. Paul says, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. (laughs) Do I want to go with the Lord or do I want to stay here and work for the Lord? I mean, most of us would say, man, I'd go with the Lord. Wouldn't we? That wasn't Paul's desire. He said, I'm kind of torn. I'm kind of torn. You know, it'd be like this. If if you knew next Thursday you were going to meet somebody in Key Market and you were going to have the privilege of leading them to Christ, through whatever conversation you struck up with them and all of a sudden, man, they're they're asking about salvation and, and, boy, you... All of a sudden, you know this in advance. Next Thursday, this person is going to come to Christ because you're there in Key Market and you're letting Christ shine through you. And yet, Monday afternoon, you have an issue that might take you home to be with the Lord. What would it be? What would be your decision? Ah, do I go now or do I wait? Well, if it means this, this person is coming to Christ and God's still using me, I can hang out here for a couple more days, Lord. And really, that's all it is. And, and you think of it in the perspective of eternity. Our time here on earth is nothing. I was thinking the other day, I've had 58 Christmases here on this planet. 58. And I thought, wow, I wonder how far back I can remember. And it doesn't go real far. Probably when I was... Three, I remember before my mother passed away, I remember sitting in the living room, and I remember there was a fire, and everybody was there, and, but that's all I can remember. I just remember being kind of held by my mom and seeing the tree with some gifts under it. And then I remember a little later on, several years after she passed away, I remember sitting in a chair with my dad on his lap. And he was reading the morning paper. And I remember one of my brothers saying something, kind of interrupting his reading, and him kind of yelling at him, you know, I'm reading the paper. You know, he was kind of a, a doc, medic, he was a medical doctor and just wasn't real lovey dovey. But I remember sitting there just looking at my dad, thinking, wow, I was probably, I don't know, five, six, seven. He passed away when I was seven. But I'm thinking, wow. Seven Christmases had gone by at that point. And it seems like forever. I remember when my oldest brother turned 40, it was like, wow, he's so old. <laughs> I mean, time just flies, doesn't it? And Paul is saying, you know what? If, I, if I'm going to stay here a little bit longer, and God, if you're going to use me for your glory, I don't know which one to choose, to go with you or to stay here. He said, I'm hard-pressed between the two. That means it's a difficult decision. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. He's, he's being honest about it. For that is far better. Far better. I mean, when you die and you go to be with Christ, trust me, it's far better than what you're living right now. I don't care what kind of life you're living. That's why I have an issue when some people say, well, this is your best life now. No, it's not. No, it's not. Verse 24, Philippians 1, he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
convinced of this, verse 25, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause in glory to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And then he even reminds himself, I think, after stating that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he says, our citizenship is in where? It's in heaven. That's where our citizenship is. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Do you understand that one day when Christ comes back, we will have a body like his glorified body? I mean, can you wrap your mind around that? No more aches, no more pains. I mean, we'll walk through walls. I mean, it's, it's great. We can eat whatever we want. Not going to put in any pounds. I mean, it's crazy. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. See, we are constantly feeling this tug of heaven on our hearts. We constantly are awaiting eagerly the the revealing, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking for Jesus to come. I pray that you are. If we read his word, we're confident of his coming. We know it could be soon. I was listening to an old message. I think it was Adrian Rogers years ago, like in the early 60s, I think. And he was talking about the coming of Christ. And he was, you know, Adrian Rogers, and he's very animated, and his voice is just, and he said, he could come today. You know, and it was like just that anticipation. And that was how many years ago? Crazy. See, the thing that we fail to understand, nothing has to happen on the world scene before Christ comes back. We believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. He can come back at any time for his church. And that starts the whole process rolling. But he says here in 1 Corinthians, the end of chapter, or end of verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word wait there means to wait with eager anticipation. It doesn't, have the idea of, oh, I'm waiting for Uber in front of my house. I'm waiting for this guy. I wish he'd get here. I'm just so bored. No. Um, people don't like to wait. Do you like to wait? Most people don't like to wait. As a matter of fact, when, when Uber came up with their, their, their different ride um, rides that they offer, their their the people that ride in Uber, whatever you call them, riders. Um, you know, you have the Uber X, and they pick you up, and you're the only one in the car, and they take you to where you want to go. And then you have Uber Pool, which they may pick you up, and then they got to go pick up Mary Jane and Bobby Jim, and, and then finally you get to your place, okay? Just you don't know how, how long it's going to take you. And then they came up with a new one called Uber Express, and as a driver of Uber part-time, it, it, I just hate Uber Express. I just don't like it. It's very cheap. It doesn't pay you very well. And you drive all over the place. And I, I had the privilege of taking an Uber executive one time from Redwood City to San Francisco. And he was sitting in the back seat on his laptop, and he opened it up, and he said, do you mind if I ask you some questions as a driver? I said, no, go ahead. What do you like? What do you like? I go, you know what? I don't like Uber Express. 
Because why not? It's supposed to be easy for the riders to, to pick people up, you know. Because what it does is say, I want to go to my house. From here to say, you know what, walk down to the corner of Roosevelt and Upton, and the Uber driver will pick you up there. Why can't he just pick me up here? Well, it's Uber Express. You've got to walk a little bit to get to the place where he's going to pick you up. Because it's supposed to be more convenient for the driver. So to say something like, meet him on the northwest corner of Roosevelt and Upton. Well, in the Bay Area, people have a real problem with directions. Okay. So first of all, the riders are never on the corner they're supposed to be. And usually, if they are on the corner, literally they're standing on the corner. Like they're on the corner of Jefferson and El Camino waiting for Uber to stop and pick them up. Well, have you ever tried to stop on the corner of Jefferson and El Camino? It's impossible. So what do you have to do? You have to go around and get in the parking lot of Whole Foods, and then you're waiting for them, and you're trying to get their attention. Well, I'm waiting where it says to wait. You know, it's just a disaster. So I asked this guy, I go, why did they come up with this? He said, I'll tell you why. We did a study, and one of the one things that we learned for our riders was we, we used another study by the airline years ago. The airline did a pool of all their... their uh, patrons. And they said, what's the worst thing you hate about the experience of flying? This was before TSA and all that. And they said, you know what? I hate when the flight's over, I get to the airport and I'm waiting at that stupid carousel and that bag just doesn't come out. I mean, I'm waiting and I'm waiting and everybody's getting their bags, but my bag's not coming out. Eventually, finally, 10, 20, 30 minutes later, it comes out. I mean, what takes them so long? These guys put in a little cart, take it over there. I mean, what's the big deal? You know what the airline did? You remember, you used to get off the airplane and you would walk a relatively short distance to your baggage carousel. Well, they realized that, you know what? That's not benefiting us. That's causing people to wait there for an undue time, waiting for that silly little bag to come out of that chute where the gorillas are throwing it around down there, you know? So what they did is they said, let's have them get off the plane and rather than going to this baggage carousel, we'll make them walk. (laughs) about a half a mile to this baggage carousel. And then by the time they get there, it'll be a short time before the bags actually pop out of that hole. And they'll be thinking, wow, this is great. Because they're waiting the same amount of time, but they're doing something while they're waiting. Well, Uber thought that would be a good idea for their riders, so that's why they started Uber Express. So they said, you know what, if you want to ride... Um, and you're at Grace Bible Church, well, we're going to make you walk down to the corner there, and then by the time you get there, your driver will be there, so you won't even have to wait. Well, it just doesn't work practically, but that's my own personal opinion. What's that have to do here? It says we're waiting eagerly. We're waiting with anticipation. But also, this implies that we're doing something while we're waiting. We're not just sitting here on earth twiddling our thumbs waiting for the Lord to come back. That's not why he has equipped us. That's not why he has given us all these gifts. That's not why he has given us all speech, all knowledge. He gave us those present gifts of grace so that we could use them while we're here waiting for him. It involves working, doing something. It doesn't involve just coming to church on Sunday and sitting here and listening to somebody talk about Christ. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to do so much more than that. 
We're called to be busy about the Lord's business. See, this isn't an idle, passive kind of waiting. It involves working while you're waiting. You know, that's what I like about people who are multitaskers. You know, they're always doing something. You know, they may be waiting for something, but they're doing something else. They're, they're, they're taking care of business. That's what God calls us to be. You know, if you were just going to wait here and just hang out and do nothing, where are you hanging out? You're hanging out in a hopeless place with no hope. You're, you're, you're going to be depressed unless you're making a difference through the power of Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says this, I know whom I have believed in, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. See, we can say that with Paul, that we're not just here waiting around. We're waiting for God to use us. We're waiting for his return. We're anticipating his return. But trust me, as we wait, we should be doing something. Well, what is this revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ? What does this mean? It refers to his, his manifestation without the veil of the incarnation. We just got through talking about how God came and, and was incarnate, took on a human body. Well, he won't have that human body when he returns. He'll have a glorified body. The next time he comes, he will come fully revealed, blazing in splendor. And that's what we anticipate. That's what we're waiting for. John MacArthur points out five points why we should wait. Why wait? What are the reasons we should wait for his coming? Well, first of all, he points out that it means Christ's exaltation. That's what we're waiting for. You know, it's kind of like when your, your child is in the, 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 the play, the Christmas play, and he's got the big solo at the end. You know, you would never think if it's your child and you know the solo's at the end, yeah, you're going to put up with all the dribble up until your son gets up there, you know. You're going to listen to the kids do this stuff. Why? You're going to anticipate your, your son or your daughter getting up there and, and you want to see them perform their, their best solo or whatever it might be. You're going to wait till the end. Well, see, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ will bring about his long due, eternally deserved exaltation. Stop and think what Christ did when he came to earth. He took on the form of a, a human. I would say that's a little bit of a step down. <laughs> I mean, when you're God and you're in heaven and you come into this physical earth and you put on the physical restraints of earth, gravity and hunger and thirst, that's a step down from your exalted being. And he did so willingly. But the Bible says that he will finally be crowned, Revelation 17, 14, Lord of lords and King of kings. He's been generally neglected. He's been humiliated. He's been despised. He's been rejected for over 2,000 years. Even today, people reject Christ. His second coming will end all of that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 Paul says that every knee will bow. It won't be optional. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. Everyone will understand that he is Lord. And by the way, the first time Christ came, he came as a, a human, a baby, he took on flesh. And we, we, we talked about this Christmas Eve in our service. We said, well, why did Jesus have to be born of a, like a human being, why couldn't he just come as God? Well, because God can't die. 
So his purpose in coming was to give up his life. And the only way that he could give up his life is to possess a human body. Because God himself, he could not die. And so he took on the form of a human body. And he came really as a sin bearer. That little baby born in Bethlehem that night was a sin bearer. He was, he was the one that was going to take on the sins of all those who would put their faith and trust in him. When he grew 30 years later, went to the cross, died, he died for our sin. He was a sin bearer. The second time he will come, he will not come as a sin bearer. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 says this, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. And then it says, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What did he say when he hung on the cross? His last words were what? It's finished. We don't need to continually sacrifice Christ over and over and over for the sins of people, our own or anybody else's. He offered himself once and for all. So it means Christ's exaltation. Secondly, he points out that it means Satan's defeat. Yay! You know, that's, that's a good, good place to say amen. You know, the Lord's return will bring Satan's final defeat. He's not defeated yet. I don't care how many times you bind him in your own mind. You know, I don't know what that means anyway, but you hear people say that. I bind you, Satan, in the name of... Okay, well, who unbinds him? Because he's definitely not bound. Is there somebody out there saying, well, I unbind him in the name of... I mean, how does that work? Okay, that's kind of a crazy thing that, that, that's floating around today. Well, when the Lord returns, it will be ultimately Satan's defeat. He will no longer be the prince of the power of the air. He will no longer be the ruler of the world. John 14.30, Ephesians 2.2. 2. He'll be bound, it says, for a thousand years, released for a little bit, and then chained and thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. In Revelation 20.10, it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. You ever smelled sulfur? Like rotten eggs? Oh, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Sounds like a defeat to me. You know, we, we live in a, a world today that is really run amok. We see the power of Satan all over us, especially here in the Bay Area. But remember, we are dealing with a defeated foe. <laughs> so he's just trying to ink out any last little bit of hurrah that he could have before he is ultimately defeated at the return of Christ. Well, it also means justice for the martyrs, justice for the martyrs. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, it says uh, that John saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. These are people who took a stance. Dave Bullen, once in a while, he talks about these Bibles over here and what they mean and how people actually gave their life for the very word of God that we possess today. It says, And because of the testimony which they had maintained, and they, cry, they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, how holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Do you ever get sick and tired of bad people winning? <laughs> Evil people just getting away with stuff? You know, it's almost like they're being blessed for their wickedness. 
Well, one day that will all come to an end, trust me. The Bible clearly says that. The Bible says that vengeance is not ours, but it what? It belongs to the Lord. In Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 19, Paul says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Nobody gets away with anything before a holy God. Not us, not anyone. We need to be reminded of that. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who will afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed, there it is, from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. See, the next time Christ returns, he is not coming as a little baby. He's not coming as a sin bearer. He's coming as Lord, he's coming as judge. He's coming with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Well, it also means the death of Christ rejectors, those who reject Christ. Christ's return will bring death to all who, who have rejected him. Second uh, Thessalonians verses one, chapter one, verse seven to nine, Paul says this: When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, we just read that. He will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. See, the Lord is coming to judge, beloved, those who have hated him, those who have rejected him. And you know what? They deserve it. We all deserve it but the grace of God. That's the miracle of salvation. We're not saved because we deserve it. We're saved because God has graciously chosen us. He's shown his love to shine upon us, not because of anything in and of ourselves, because it's his own doing. John says, you're not saved from the will of man, the will of the flesh. You're saved what? By the will of God. It's him who saves us. We don't save ourselves. And then it also means heaven for those who believe. And this is why we wait with anticipation. For all who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have anticipated his coming, will mean heaven for all eternity. Not a week. You know, once in a while you go on a vacation, maybe a week, two weeks, get some good deal, stay in a nice hotel. And guess what? Holiday's over. <laughs> you know, the maid's not going to clean your room the next day. She's going to tell you to get out. You know, none of this fancy stuff anymore. You're back to eating hamburgers and whatever. You know, that's the way it is. The vacation's over. You know, and that's, that's the way life is. You know, we, we, we work up to a high point, put up all these decorations, go and buy these beautiful little flowers here. But look at them. They're not so beautiful. <laughs> They're almost dead. They're dying. They're not going to be here next week, I'll tell you that. Terry wanted to take them out of here this morning. I said, no, I've got to use them as an illustration. See, this, this is really an illustration of our life. This is what happens. You know, we're born, and then, boy, we, we just start going downhill, withering away. But you know what? We have heaven to look forward to. You know, there's not going to be any withering in heaven. There's not going to be any death or destruction. There's not even going to be any tears in heaven. I mean, talk about looking forward to something. 
And unlike Satan's defeat, unlike the justice for the martyrs that God will deal out, unlike the death for the Christ rejectors, our gift of heaven is totally undeserved. (laughs) We don't deserve it. Nobody here deserves to go to heaven. We've all sinned in a myriad of ways. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If left to ourselves, we deserve the same fate as everybody else. But we don't get that because we're under God's grace. Because at some point in our life, we cried out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Help me to turn from my sin to the Savior. I don't want to carry this burden any longer. I can't. I pray that you would save me by your grace. And in Christ, we're granted forgiveness. In Christ, we're granted redemption. In Christ, we're granted holiness. We're granted sainthood. We're granted life everlasting in the presence of the unfading glory of our Lord. I mean, that should put a spring in your step as you step into this new year, 2019. God, I just pray that maybe, maybe this is the year you're going to come back. I pray that I would do everything I can with the gifts and the, the grace that you've given me to serve you up until that time. Well, verse 8 tells us that not only we wait for the revealing, his revealing, but also it says, talks about his sustaining. It says, who will sustain you to the end? You notice it doesn't say, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you better hang in there. Doesn't say that. It doesn't even say, be patient. It says, he will sustain you to the end. That word sustain means to establish or to confirm. When Christ returns, he will confirm. He will establish us. He will establish us, it says what? Blameless, guiltless. Not many people here would probably raise their hand if I asked if you really look forward to those guilty feelings that merge into your heart once in a while. Oh, yeah, I just love to be guilty. No, most people would say, I don't like guilt. Having grown up in the Catholic Church, I had enough guilt. I don't need any more guilt. We don't enjoy guilt. And we need to understand that he is going to make us guiltless or blameless. It has the idea that you are irreproachable. You're unimpeachable. There's no flaw. Nothing. He's not going to be able to point to you, oh, you know, you still got a little anger there. No. We're going to be perfect in every way. We're going to be holy completely in our glorification before Christ. See, when we enter into heaven, beloved, we're not going to have all of our sins, all of our shortcomings, you know, some people think, well, when you get to heaven, there's going to be a big screen and you're going to have to sit there with everybody else and you're going to see all your sins. No, that's, where does that come from? Christ will affirm before the eternal throne of God that we are now counted 
as blameless, guiltless. I mean, we work on our blamelessness and our guiltlessness now. We try to be. We try to live a life that's pleasing to him, but we all falter, we all fail in a myriad of ways probably. But only then will we be confirmed, it says, blameless. It'll be a done deal. We'll be made blameless. Settled, secure in blamelessness for all of eternity. Can you imagine just living one day without any haunting feelings of guilt or blame or guilt? I mean, think about it. We're talking about all of eternity. This is what God has for us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26 and 27, it says, When the Lord comes, he's going to present to the Father the church, those who are saved, the church in all her glory, having no spot, no wrinkle, or any such thing. You know, my wife is big on ironing clothes. I'm not so big, but I, I can iron, you know, I can do a lot of things. But once in a while, I'll pull a pair of pants out or a shirt, and, ah, that's good enough. You know, I'm going to be wearing a jacket over it anyway. Who cares if it's got wrinkles on the back or whatever? What a glorious thing to have, not have to deal with spots or wrinkles or any such thing. Pure. But that she, the church, should be holy, totally set apart unto the Lord, and blameless, Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul says, The church, the bride, will be forever a pure virgin. See, purity is something that we have to look forward to. We're sure of this grace, past, present, and future. And the reason we can be sure of that is the last thing here, that his faithfulness will sustain us. It says in verse 9, God is faithful. I mean, I can't imagine the Corinthians reading this going, yeah, well, you know, you're saying all this, but you don't know how we really are. (laughs) Do you ever have somebody heap praises upon you when you know you're not doing the right thing? (laughs) Doesn't feel good. Paul says in verse 9, you know what? It's not about you, Corinthians. It's about God's faithfulness. The Greek construction here really says faithful is God, not God is faithful. The focus is on the faithfulness. It means trustworthy. It means reliable, consistent, dependable. I mean, anybody who has walked with the Lord in their salvation for any amount of time knows the faithfulness of God. Even if you just know it a little bit. As you're maturing in your faith, you'll you'll understand it even more and more. Great is thy faithfulness. And he says here, it's because of that that you're being sustained. Who will sustain you that God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. Remember, it goes all the way back to verse 1 when Paul says, hey, look at me, Corinthians, Paul. Remember Paul? Remember Paul when he was Saul? (laughs) And he was killing all those Christians? Paul says, right at the 
Verse 1, he says, it's not my will that I came to Christ. He says, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he reiterates that down there. It's because of God's faithfulness. It's because God called you into this fellowship. He called you to be a believer. See, that's the, the future glory at Christ's appearing, that it's certain. Why? How can we know for sure that's going to happen? In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, he says, He called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. That is a done deal. That will happen. When it will happen, who knows? But it will happen. Remember what I said. It's, it's always this word call, the call of God. It's always the effectual call in the epistles. It's not the general call. It's always the effectual call. It's the call that saves someone. It's the call of God that's not wasting any breath. It's the call of God upon the human heart that causes that human heart to repent and to turn from their sin to the Savior. See, we're saved because God wanted us saved, beloved. We're not saved because we wanted to get saved. And we stay saved because God does not change his mind about that desire. When God saved you, he saved you specifically. See, this is what's important to understand. When Christ died on the cross, who did he die for? He died for those whom he was going to save. That's who he died for. It has to be that way, theologically. Because if Christ on the cross paid for the sins of all the world, everybody, across the entire earth, whether they come to Christ or not, their sins are paid for, what kind of God would it be who could send someone whose sins are forgiven to hell? Couldn't happen. That would be an unjust God. That would be like somebody throwing you in jail for a fine that you just paid. That wouldn't be right. There'd be something wrong with that. So when Christ died on the cross, we know that he died a very specific death. He paid for our specific sins. It wasn't some general, well, yeah, Jesus died on the cross and made it possible for any and all to come to Christ. Matter of fact, Ephesians tells us that even before the foundation of the world, God chose whom he would save whom he would set his love upon. That's a hard doctrine. That's, that's a hard thing to hear. But you know what? That's the truth. That's what the Bible says. And this is God's plan. It's not ours. It's God's program. It's not ours. So if this is the way God laid it out, and God said, you know what? I'm going to set my grace on you, and you're going to come to Christ, and that's what happens. You come to Christ. We had no part in God's original desire to call us. None at all, because it was done even before the foundation of the world. And you know what? We can do nothing to change it. Not one thing. If he called us when we were lost and when we were in our sin and wretched, he will surely not cease to be faithful to that call now that we have come into fellowship with his son. This is what he says. He says, where did God call you? God is faithful by whom you were called where? Into the fellowship. What is that word? It means partnership. It means oneness. We are secured to glory by being one with God's beloved Son. 
If God were to ever reject us as a Christian, he would have to reject Christ as his son. That's not going to happen. We entered the kingdom by grace and will be kept in the kingdom by his grace, by his faithfulness. So as you anticipate this new year, there may be some anxiety, but spiritually, I pray that you will understand clearly that God has, first of all, called you to wait and to use your gifts while you're waiting for the revealing of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his his return. And while you're waiting, he's going to sustain you. Throughout this next year, whatever may come, God's going to sustain you if you're one of his children. There's no doubt about it. Why? Because God is faithful. God would not say one thing and do another. Because we've entered into that koinonia, that that partnership with Christ. He's allowed that. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, it says that. It says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Are we sanctified completely? Not yet, practically. Positionally we are. We're set apart by God totally, completely. Or he considers us saints, even though we don't act saintly all the time. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept he says, blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that, that's not based on our behavior. That's not based on, on who we are as individuals. That's based on God's faithfulness. That's based on God's sustaining power. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we don't know what this new year may bring. Father, it may be clouds of incredible blessing that rain down upon our lives and our church. It may be clouds that distribute trials and tribulation and torment. We don't know. But Lord, you do. You have a purpose. You have a plan for each and every one of us. Father, your desire is that we would, first of all, that we would come to Christ, that we would turn our hearts from our sin, from our own way of doing things, and address you for who you are, the holy, righteous, creator God, who has initiated a plan for our salvation through Christ. And Lord, if we're feeling that conviction even now, Lord, that we would turn to the Savior and that we would, in our own quietness, in our own heart, that we would turn from our sin and pronounce our faith and trust in Christ, our Lord and Savior. It was he who died on on Calvary so that we didn't have to. And yet, when we come to Christ, we're called to die to ourselves each and every day. We're called to take up that cross and follow you. You don't tell us where we're going all the time, which creates a little fear, creates a little anxiety. But Lord, in the end, we know that you will sustain us because your faithfulness requires that. And so, Father, we pray today, if there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, I pray that even now that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me. Help me even in my unbelief 
Help me understand what it means to be one of God's children. Help me understand what it means to be relieved of this guilt of sin that I'm carrying. And for believers, Lord, I pray that we would not grow weary in well-doing, Lord, that we would leave this place ready to roll our, our slaves up. And first of all, that we'd be willing to make sure that we are doing what we should be doing as individuals before you, that we're reading your word, that we're committing it to memory, that we're spending time in prayer, that we're serving you, that we're using our gifts to minister, and that we would examine our own lives this next year. How many hours of those thousands of hours that just went by, how many hours did we use to serve you? I pray that in this new year, whatever that number may be, that it may increase. That we would be busy about the things for Christ and his kingdom. That we would see many come to Christ through the power of your word, through the power of your spirit. Through the power of our testimony in this dark peninsula in which we live. Lord, that people would just see something different in us. And that we would use that opportunity to explain to them that difference, that being Christ and the glorious gospel. Father, we thank you for our fellowship this morning. We pray that you would just bless our remaining time and also, Lord, our our time of fellowship over in the fellowship hall as we share food together. Pray you'd bless that to our bodies as well. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.